you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Ark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. <sighs> I'm Liz Manish. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on 37 more. I'm a distribution consultant used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative, and I do sales, too. This week, we welcome prolific Bay Area filmmaker Mark Smolowitz on the show for our first ever live show of 2022. Wow, it was amazing. We talked to Mark at the first ever Bay Area Media Makers Summit in front of a live audience and talked about how he formed a sustainable career making films, how he raises his funds, and what he looks for in hiring a director. And just, you know, he's mainly a producer. He, ma- he directs too. He does other things. But like, he's like a very prolific producer. Like he's produced, I don't know, 50 different projects. It's insane. We also have an article from The Hollywood Reporter talking about the new Academy members that were just announced. A few of which our previous guests. What, what? Congratulations to all you. We'll shout you out later. All we also talk about consistency in filmmaking because I want to ask Liz about this consistency thing. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I guess the update to talk about is Amy and I have overhauled our horror script yet again and went back to the outline phase yet again. Wow. Which is amazing. And I'm feeling really good about it because we've actually stripped it of all, like almost entirely all of the supernatural witchcraft type stuff, which always seems to get in the way for me. And turned it more into like a haunted presence movie. I don't know how to describe it. It's like the presence of a traumatic event is influencing the people in the house. Mm-hmm. So it's not a ghost movie per se, but it's more of a, um, it, it's turning into more of a like, a, <laughs> um, oh, I don't even know what to call it, like a homicide movie. Oh, wow. Where the killers are influenced by this evil, but it is, a, you know, know, a bunch of friends killing each other now. But it's now funnier because that's mm. hilarious. And um, <laughs> and I'm having more fun with it. So I just was, I'm like speaking with this tone because I'm realizing how many times I've said on the podcast, we've changed it up. We've gone back to the outline. We've done it again. We've done it again. But that's just part of the process is like continuously reevaluating what your movie's about. So is it more like The Shining then without as many visions? Is it like that? That's a that's a really good comp. I'm trying to think of like we, Amy talks about the grudge a little bit, though the grudge, mm. you know, it's like uh, there is an entity to a degree, and it, it I think it arguably can be made that it's possessing the women in this house, but it's you don't know, you don't ever see the entity at this moment, and we're also mm. kind of making an analogy to infection too. It's like the mm. infection is spreading with the possessions that are occurring in in the storyline. Yeah, but it's but nice. but now we can make, write more jokes about friendship, which is really fun. That's cool. It's like the thing without uh, the alien. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Without the thing that makes it really exciting. Yeah. Oh, no, that's funny. No, that's cool. I mean, I think, well, it's definitely going to make it more makeable, right? Because if you take away all that special effects stuff and it's all like psychological and, you know, then you just have to worry about the physical kills, which I mean, obviously can get quite complicated, but it's less complicated than supernatural or ghosts or whatever other stuff. Yeah. And I, I kept fighting the idea of a haunted house movie and I and Amy and I kept talking about it and I was like tropes we keep on falling into these tropes <laughs> I watched The Changeling last week as one of my homework movies mm. and it's so great I don't know if you've seen The Changeling I haven't seen it I know of it though I've heard it's good 
Well, and it's filled with tropes. It's filled with them. But the f- the film still works because it ha- it's like a film with integrity. Like, it's high production value. It's great performances. Everyone takes it very seriously. Like, I think the tropes fail when they're surrounded by, like, an, a, a cheapness and a lack of care and a lack of thought, right? So, right. I, I have all these red flags when I write. I'm like, gotta avoid this, gotta avoid that. And I'm trying to let go of them because it's the execution that's important, not the not the idea itself. Yeah. I feel like tropes, tropes are complicated because in, in a lot of genre filmmaking, you kind of want to lean into them and sometimes, right. but then also you don't want to be too tropey where people see it coming and it feels like just predictable, you know, but like in, in, in a way, no one will ever admit this, but in a way, viewers want the tropes. Like the tropes are help what makes it the genre it is. Like you have to have them to a degree. So disguising them and making them service your characters and like intertwine with your, with your plot, your characters and, and like the story you're telling right. like that's the trick it's not getting rid of the tropes it's like disguising them and yeah. hiding them you know <laughs> which is like yeah. sneaky but it's cool you know it's fun no i think it's great and i think i've with my first two films they were almost genre adjacent right like i we call speed of life sci-fi but it's not really sci-fi because i kept on being afraid of the tropes thinking that they were that they were bad in some way and so i'm learning <laughs> well, to embrace them a little bit well some are bad but yeah, some, some are bad. but some are good so it's just like trying to figure out which ones are good and when they're good when they're bad cuz like yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it gets complicated. But that's what I love about genre filmmaking. Because it's like this amazing puzzle. This amazing, like, thing to put together. Yeah. But, like, you know, you can easily fuck it up. Like, you know, it's so easy to fuck up the puzzle and make it <laughs> shit, you know? And so, like, trying to do it in a way that is, like, engaging and feels fresh, but isn't too, you know, is still familiar enough where people are, like, into it, you know? It's like, I don't know. So funny. <laughs> I was just thinking, so have you seen Doctor Strange 2 yet? Have you watched that? No, I mean, I've, like, walked in on Sean watching it yesterday. That's the oh closest I've gotten into. Uh, so, so it's totally, like, Sam Raimi embracing his horror roots in, like, the biggest way. It's like they said, like, do whatever the fuck you want. And he was like, okay, I'll just, like, make e- e- Army of Darkness slash Evil Dead 2 slash other, like, really crazy, over-the-top horror stuff I want, I love and put it in a Marvel movie and just go nuts and I'll do all these amazing things, have all these amazing kills in this Marvel movie and uh, you'll let me do it because you are Marvel and you love me. And they said, okay, sure, no problem. Do whatever you want. Kill whoever you want. It's fine. <laughs> and I think, like, I was talking to some Marvel fans when that movie came out and they were like, oh, it's not a Marvel movie. Like, it doesn't feel like the other Marvel movies. It's too weird. It's not right. It's off. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, it's amazing. It's so much better than the the stupid, like, sameness that all those Marvel movies have. Like, this one felt so different. And it's because he, like, did his thing. And, like, yeah, almost to the degree, almost leaned into the tropes, too. Like, he, like, hit all the beats, had his amazing horror moments, like, just went nuts with it whenever he wanted to. Bruce Campbell's in the... It's amazing. It's really great. So I hope you like it if when you see it. Yeah. And I mean, Sean's watching it for a reason. Cause it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else going on with you? Liz? No, I, I want to hear about you. About? No, go. Tell me you. What's up with me? Yeah, I mean, lots of personal fun stuff. It was my my daughter's birthday yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, like, we had a fun birthday weekend. You survived a year. It's your birthday, too. You survived if, a if, year. <laughs> it felt like another birthday. We, yeah. like, we, like, went to the beach. And then, like, you know, when she went to bed, we like, got hamburgers and milkshakes. And, like, we totally celebrated like it was our birthday. But yeah. but we just did things with her, to, you know, for her, with her. But she's so young. Like, she doesn't 
doesn't she doesn't care. She doesn't you know? know. She has another day for her. Yeah. But we did go to the beach, which was fun. She'd never been to the beach before, so we took her to the ocean and she saw the waves and she wasn't too scared of the waves, so that was cool. Yeah, I'm pretty deep in it with these two editing projects. I got some big milestones on the feature, which was like really fucking with me, man. Cause like I did, I, I'm, I'm did the online edit for my movie in a very specific way, which is not how everyone else does it. It's like not the way it's done. It's like not the industry standard way. Uh, it's just the way that I prefer to work because it's easier for me. But then when I tried to do that same way for this movie, it was like nothing was working. It was all wrong. And then I like talked to like the DIT and I talked to the, the director and I f- basically figured out like, oh, I, I I have to do it this way. Like I have to use DaVinci. Like I have to follow this, this, this certain way of doing doing it or it just won't work at all you know because that's not the way that it was set up originally and yeah it was so complicated and figuring out what the aspect ratio of the movie was because like like i thought it was 239 is actually 255 it's like i don't know it's really interesting but we all the director and i kind of all figured it out in the last couple days and i got davinci to work and i'm I'm using it and it's like oh i can see why people like it so much because like exporting visual effects shots was like the easiest thing i've ever done in my life it was so much easier than doing it through Premiere. Premiere, I had to do all this extra work to just get the shots to my visual effects artist. But this one, it's just like a couple clicks and it just does it for you. And I'm like, oh... It's easy. That's cool. I was like freaking out because I have to get all these shots to the editor by Tuesday. It's going to take no time. Like once they tell me that like what I did was right and like that if they confirm that it worked, like it'll be a breeze. So that was nice. And then editing this movie has been really fun because like, yeah, it's just like a cool story and getting to be creative and everything. And that's due like also Thursday. So like I have a lot of work to do between now and tomorrow. Oh my God. (laughs) And I'm I'm going on vacation over the weekend. So (laughs) I don't know. Crazy. I'm like looking at the date. I'm like, that's tomorrow. You have to do it by tomorrow. Yeah. You will. Yeah, tonight and tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, you will. No problem. I'll do it. It'll be fine. It'll work out. You know, if I if I lose some sleep and if I if I have to push back, I mean, Eric, who's a listener, who's the director, if, if, if it doesn't get done by tomorrow, like, will Eric be mad at me? Yes. Will, will he be rightfully angry at me? Yes. Will he forgive me? I think so. Will I be able to get to him? Like early next week, yes. So yeah, if that happened, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I obviously don't want that to happen. Like I do think I can hit the deadline, but yeah. So I don't know. Not really working on anything for me right now. Just kind of working on these two projects, and yeah, just trying to push things forward. I read a really great script. Oh, that meeting I talked about last week went well with that yeah. potential financier person. Yeah, he doesn't need me though. He's like, God, I don't know. <laughs> like he's he's his story is incredible. We should have him on as a guest at some point. But like, yeah, he like sold a movie to Netflix like did this like made money on the sale actually like he's got connections to all these famous fancy people I'm like why do you want my movie (laughs) like you have access to all these other people you could work with them (laughs) that makes more sense maybe he likes discovery maybe he likes you know maybe I think people yeah. really like, quote unquote, discovery. They like to own other people and their success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they that's do, don't they? like joyful for yeah, others. That's totally, that's totally true. That's not a joke. Yeah. People, that's, that's the real talk right there. People like to own each other. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he just wants to like pimp you out, Ulrich. Like maybe that's maybe. what's going on. And, I, you know, I think a lot of us would be like, please, please pimp me. Like, go yeah. ahead. I got to follow up with him because, like, after I sent, like, a couple scripts and a couple pitch books over, I haven't heard anything. So, like, I know he's a busy guy and, like, you know, he's, like, flying to Los Angeles and then flying to Spain and then flying to this place. He's, like, one of those Fancy. crazy people. Fancy. Fancy people. Not crazy. Fancy people. So, 
we'll see how that goes. But it was good. It was a good experience. And I actually, actually got really depressed after it because like I realized in the meeting that like I'm not as prepared to pitch as I think I am. Like I think I could pitch to anybody at any time. Like, oh yeah, I'll just pitch, pitch, no problem. But like, and I pitched to these pitches, you know, over dinner and it was cool. It like worked, you know, but like, yeah, it wasn't as strong. Like I wasn't the pitch machine I thought I was, you know, like this ability yeah. to like just wow people with my amazing ideas, like without any practice, without any preparation, just to wing it and it'd be great. Like, you know, I have to prepare. I have to practice like that. Really? I need to remember that next time I get into one of these situations that I should put some practice time in first because it makes a big difference for me. Yeah. But if you're like at dinner with someone and they come at you really intensely, like I've had that happen to me where someone's like, let me tell you about my project. And they have like a, you know, memorized monologue and it's all there and there's a script to it. Like, even if you weren't 100% ready, which I don't know if I believe that, <laughs> you know, you ha- you probably sprinkled enough information without overwhelming or dehumanizing the situation. Like, I think you could yeah. go the other way very easily. I definitely didn't go the other way for sure, which is good. I think that's that's probably better, like you said, like not to become a machine or like treat it like you're desperate, you know, or like you've got, you yeah. put a lot of time, like this means, this means Meeting means everything to you. It's like you don't want to come off that way. Right. But I think like for me, it's if you put some practice in, it's not that I would practice a speech or practice a certain presentation. It's more that I would just talk about the movie to myself over and over again. Or mm-hmm. like maybe I would read something, you know, that's like, you know, that I, that I memorize, but then I wouldn't regurgitate that to them. It would just help me talk about it more like openly. Because like when I did my, my speed pitching um, last year, like that's what I, like I did a, a pitch where I, I had a pitch written out. I did a pitch video. I practiced it. I memorized it. I like had it down. And then when I did the pitch meetings with people, these actual five minute meetings, like I would dip into that pitch, but I wouldn't rely on it. And I would, I would change it depending on the person. So like, depending on what they told me and like what they knew about me as a filmmaker or, or if they'd seen the alternate or if they hadn't seen the alternate or whatever, like I would just change it accordingly. And I think that really helped like to be able to just wing it, but like have all the information memorized so you can, you can enter, you can like throw it into a conversation, but you're not like pitching like a, like a, like a song and dance number, you know? Yeah, That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I didn't have that, that, that like (laughs) comfortableness with, with the material that I thought I did. Like I, I needed to, I should have brushed up on it a little bit first. So but next time. Next time. But what you don't need to practice for, you could just go over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash podcast and support the show if you like the show. This is the way the show keeps on going. Uh, without this, I would go broke trying to make the show happen. So thank you all for uh, supporting us on Patreon. We also have a lot of really fun stuff. We're actually going to have some bonus stuff around this episode. So we're going to include the Q&A and the, there's like a little opening prattle between uh, Mark, Liz and I that didn't like make it into the edit. So like those two things will be special little bonus videos that we will release shortly uh, after this episode or will already be available now on Patreon. So you want little bonus things, including our weekly meetings where Liz, uh, Eric and I just talk about movies and, you know, bemoan the fact that our downloads are down uh, lately. Then you can, uh, you can jump on there and check those out too. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues. Uh, they offer customized plans to fit your needs and they're just really cool people. So use our code MMIH to get 20% off of your subscription today. And without any more delay, here's our chat with Mark Smolowitz at BAMS, the Bay Area Media Makers Summit. Well, 
Welcome everyone to the conversation. This is uh, Making Movies is Hard, which is a podcast about filmmaking and the struggle of being an independent filmmaker for anybody who doesn't know what the podcast is. And uh, I'm Mark Purcell. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. And we've got Liz Manischel here coming in on Zoom. She's the other host of the show. And we're really excited to be here with Mark Smolowitz today, um, a producer extraordinaire. So Mark, why don't you just start by giving everybody like your one minute bio of like your background as a filmmaker? Well, thank you so much. Um, Thank you to the summit for inviting me. It's my honor to, you know, contribute this morning. Yeah, so I'm Mark Smolowitz and I'm a full-time independent filmmaker. I'm based in San Francisco. I've lived here for 32 years. Um, I've always worked in the film business. Um, I'm a director when they let me. (laughs) I'm a producer all the time. Um, I'm an executive producer sometimes, um, and I'm also a consulting producer. And on the consulting side of my business, I work with many filmmakers um, at all different stages of their career. I work from kind of like the kernel of the idea sometimes. Like I've literally jumped on movies where someone has sent me an email with a paragraph and a pitch. Um, But I had this real sort of track record and sweet spot of jumping on movies at a midpoint um, when filmmakers hit a wall, either with financing or with story, um, or they don't know how to finish their movie and so they need someone who has a lot of experience finishing movies. Um, But when I'm involved as a producer here at my company, we actually manage all the worldwide film festival release. So we get the films placed in festivals and sometimes I'm also a combined producer slash sales agent. Um, I do work with sales agents from time to time on a particular movie that warrants it. Sometimes they're the ones that can really help orchestrate the deals. But I find that oftentimes on the films I make that um, I'm really the right person to wear that hat and really get the film out there and really understand how, how to help it meet the market. So I, you know, I'm involved for the life of a movie, typically. Um, it's, uh, you know, and the life is, can go on for three, five, seven, ten years after the film is finished. So the other piece the part that we do very well at my company is we manage all the rights. So um, it's very rare for a movie to be sold to one distributor nowadays, right? We're usually selling, you know, by rights or by territories. So I have a film where I may be talking to sometimes six, 10, 12, 15 companies around the world and if I don't have a system to make to take care of that I'll go insane right like because it's just important to have a strong back end so so over the years you know my company has built the enterprise of in the independent film industry and kind of brought it to films and filmmakers who are ranging from emerging to established um, they have a lot of you know, involvement in first and second time films. And the way that I I'm, describe my company is I'm extremely talent focused. So I don't really care what kind of movie you're making. I'm more interested in people. Um, I'm open to any kind of pitch um, in any genre. And um, I've made some pretty weird movies <laughs> over the years. Um, but I, well, the way I sort of describe what gets me excited outside of people is let's make the movie that you're making and make that movie extremely well and make that movie and that movie only, right? Let's not try to be some other movie. Like, let's define success together and and aim high for a film, right? I always want to be the best film that we can be in the vertical of film that we're making. So if you come to me with like a weird, queer, personal essay film with found footage, like, if, you're, if I'm the right producer, I'll probably say yes, and I have said yes to that movie. But if you come to me with a wacky midnight drag queen comedy, I might say yes to that movie too, right? <laughs> so it's, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of different things that motivate me to say yes, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that today. Um, but yeah, I've been doing this thing called independent filmmaking for 32 years. It's not a part of the business I haven't touched. If you ask me a question about pretty much anything, I'll probably have a meaningful answer for you today. 
Well, we're going to be talking a lot about you as a producer, but I wanted to kick off with a question about you as a director. You kind of facetiously said, you know, when they let me, I'll direct. But can you talk a little bit more about like, what are the actual factors, whether you take on the directorial position or the producerial position? Well, sure. Well, thank you for thank you for allowing to my talk about myself as a director. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I'm not sure where people are in their careers here in the room, so if I say things you know, welcome to that. But let's, let's do some kind of baseline definitions, okay? So, so the director, right, is, you know, is responsible for, you know, making the movie from the perspective of, you know, he, she, they is responsible for everything that goes on screen, right? That's the director's role, right? Usually there's one director, sometimes there's two, but there's a, it's a singular vision, right? The producer is responsible for making sure it gets on screen, right? So that's the huge difference there, it's that gets role, right? Which is why on the producer side of a film we have many more people involved, right? Because the getting on screen involves a lot of talent, a lot of people, a lot of resources, human resources, people who, people who do different things. Um, the bigger the movie, the more need for more producers who wear different hats on different aspects of the producing of the movie. Um, but the director over here is this kind of singular person sometimes, right? And our industry is really founded on making sure that this person gets their vision on screen and whatever you think of that you know welcome to that but that's that's what we do right there have been a few movies where I figured out that I was the right person to be that singular vision um, I'm now working on number five and number six um, in my director's story okay um, both are in post-production and they've taken me freaking forever um, because I am also the producer the lead producer on both of these movies right so I have other producers helping me right but imagine Imagine if I'm wearing both hats, right? The person who is the singular vision, but then also the person who is the lead of the gets it on the screen. So those movies tend to take longer for me because I just need my time, you know? When I'm, when I'm directing, it's like my blood, sweat, and tears that go into, you know, bringing this film to life, you know? Whereas when I'm producing, I can produce in my frickin' sleep, you know? I know how to produce movies, and I love producing movies, and I'm a good producer, and if you get me in your, you know, on your team as a producer, I'll be able to really add value to that project. I'm quite confident of that. But yes, directing is a slow, kind of intentional journey for me. Um, my two movies that I'm directing right now, um, one is called The Lonely Child. And in fact, my editor just walked into the room on The Lonely Child. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> um, she's doing a uh, panel on equity in the edit room later today. So that film is a story about a little-known Yiddish lullaby that was written inside the Vilna ghetto during the Holocaust, okay? And my mother and my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, so I have a very personal connection to the Holocaust. It's been a huge story in my family. And this film landed in my lap by way of a woman that I have known since I went to college at UC Santa Cruz in the 1980s. And it's a story about a lullaby that was written about her mother and her grandmother, and we always had a shared story. She and I are both children of hidden children. So our mothers were saved by helpful Gentiles. My mother was actually, stole, was actually um, smuggled out of the ghetto in Wudge and in Warsaw, I'm sorry, and then placed in Wudge in a Christian family that saved her life. So Alex's family, similar kind of story, but her family is actually more famous and has a kind of, has a whole history to it. And so we are tracing kind of the unexpected footprint of this beautiful children's song in the current moment. And the urgency of the song is this kind of, um, we're, we're at a moment where we are losing the last living Holocaust survivors, right? So we will never know when the last one takes their last breath, um, but we know that will happen soon because they're all in their 90s, 
right? And so the, the film contemplates like how can a little song remind us of this moment that we're in where, where something as gruesome as the Holocaust becomes like history or, or like memory. Like what happens to something, like, like, like a genocide when there's no one left to testify to their own actual lived experience. So that's what the film is contemplating through, through music. Um, the other film is called The G Word, and it is a very ambitious film I've been working on for about six, seven years, and it's about giftedness. So gifted education in America, and I'm looking through gifted education through the lens of equity. So who gets to be gifted in America and why? And I have stories, I've done that crazy thing in a documentary where I have seven stories um, and I'm kind of curating them into one larger story, one larger inquiry and we take you to places and spaces across this great nation where you don't expect to encounter smart people. So I have a story inside a prison, I have a story on a Native American reservation, I have a story at the US-Mexico border, I have one decidedly suburban story, we're in a very increasingly diverse county where we're looking at this sort of you know, what happens when suburbia becomes more diverse. And, and it really, it, the movie sort of, I was, I was a product of kind of good gifted education in the public schools in the 1970s, so I felt when the film landed in my lap, I felt like I was the right person. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm editing that one right now too. And that, you know, seven stories, oof, it's a lot to bring into a feature length film. The current assembly is strong in about two hours and 40 minutes. So you can imagine that, yeah. <laughs> um, but we're getting there, we're getting there. So, so yeah, those, so, so that's a long way of saying that these were both projects where the passionate piece of me really clicked in. You know, um, the first film I ever directed was a film called The Power of Two. Um, I did that after I had produced a number of movies, so I felt like I was ready. Um, I always had wanted to direct movies, and I, you know, this sort of conditions came together and conspired to get me the gig. And I optioned a book and made this movie about twin sisters who were um, both survivors of double lung transplant. They both grew up with cystic fibrosis. They both had incredible, you know, kind of public lives around advocating for better access to organ donation. And there was a whole part of their story that was going to take them to Japan. And so initially, I was hired to go film that story in Japan, and I so fell in love with them and what we did together there that we decided to keep making the movie. Wow. And then it premiered at the Tokyo International Film Festival. Wow. And I was on the red carpet there with the Prime Minister of Japan and like the most famous person on Japanese TV. And I'm like thinking, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> um, so I, I've had those moments of like, you know, bits and bobs of, you know, experiences at Sundance and Berlin and Cannes and, you know, all the big festivals. So I have been fortunate in my career to, to have that kind of verification that, you know, I'm doing this right. Um, but I also believe that we work at every level in the independent film business. You know, I, I told you that I, I handled the worldwide release for film festivals. And as much as I value my Berlin and Cannes and all those relationships, I, I value all the grassroots festivals that are in the space because it, most importantly, it's about getting our films seen by people, right? And very early on, I was able to kind of figure out the business of the film you know, industry. And so I kind of got out ahead of things. I was early involved in Liz and I've talked about in the distribution business. And all that exposure just made me a better filmmaker. So I like have a thousand questions about you as a director, but I want to shift over to you as a producer. Please. And especially focusing in on like producing films in the Bay Area, since we're all Bay Area filmmakers here. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about like some of the advantages to making a movie in the in the Bay Area and some of the more the challenges that you face while trying to shoot in San Francisco, Oakland and the surrounding areas. Sure, sure. So, um, so very early on in my career in the 90s, I made a very strategic personal professional choice that my, what I could do well was connect San Francisco with the globe, 
right? So I had this epiphany that I wasn't gonna be in LA, I wasn't gonna be in New York, I wasn't even gonna be in DC. I was gonna be in San Francisco. This is where I love to live and I wanna build my life. And there was a vibrant film community here. How could I, how could I build a career that connected us with the world? So that was sort of my charge <laughs> and what I figured I would sort of focus on for much of my career. And this was before, you know, social media, before, you know, all the things that make it possible for us to connect with the globe. So I was getting on planes and going and networking. And that exposure to the larger film, global film business was really the thing that got me charged to kind of make movies. Because when you look to the world, like the talent pool just goes wild, right? It just really does. But I love my community here. I always have. And I always wanted to find ways to keep helping this economy here develop, right? So I have this kind of mantra in my work that I, I take a very intentional approach to making films both locally and globally, right? We are all in this together, you know, no one can do this alone. It's a deeply collaborative medium. Each one of us, if we approach making our movies with intention, we will meet other people like that who are in a kind of a virtuous relationship with us. So that's really how I evaluate, even in the Bay Area, the films and filmmakers that I want to engage with and that I want to be in relationship with. Um, I have a real commitment to talent here. Um, if you look at my slate, there's always a few very strong, you know, maybe the best of Bay Area filmmakers um, <laughs> that I see have potential for both national and international success. Um, that's really how I evaluate really the projects that I want to produce with Bay Area filmmakers. Um, there's always Bay Area filmmakers in my slate. I'm committed to that. Um, I love hearing from all of you. And, and I may or may not be the right person to help you make your movie. Um, but I'll certainly be responsive to you because we are in a community together. I haven't lived here for 30 years to not respond to your emails, right? So, um, so that's, that's kind of how I roll. You know, I, I say yes to these kinds of appearances because I believe that we all have something to learn from each other, to be in community with each other, especially after a pandemic. You know, um, but this is an extremely vibrant community of filmmakers and always has been. Um, we have a history of more um, Academy Award nominations, Emmy nominations, and Peabody nominations in the nonfiction side of the film business than any other region in the country. Um, and that speaks to you know, an incredible talent pool that are attracted to making documentaries here. On the scripted side, we've always had sort of strong films emerge on that side of our, the story of our, of our region, and that has been um, a piece of the puzzle that I've always tried to stay committed to and involved in because um, we need scripted movies too, right? I explained that I'm sort of genre agnostic and so you'll look at my IMDb, you'll look at my films and you'll see oh, it's about 70% nonfiction, 30% fiction, right? So that's been the ratio of my experience, um, which is probably insane because I think documentaries are just harder to make. Um, they take longer, they're harder to fund. Um, you can sort of make them in sprints, you know, but there is something so wonderful about shooting a scripted movie because you just do it in 20 days and you're done. You know, and then you can, if you don't have money for post, you can start to, you know, solve that problem, right? But, um, but yeah, a lot of the, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, happy to go on the lifelong journey of making a movie if it's the right person and the right project. Um, but, you know, and, and if you're in the Bay Area, all the better because we can actually meet at my favorite cafe in Lower Haight and maybe have coffee together. So, <laughs> so finding funds for financing films has been hard 
forever and will continue to be difficult. But I'd be curious if you could speak to fundraising as a specific local issue. Do you have any tips for the filmmakers in the room in terms of how to find funding for their films or why the Bay Area is superior to every other <laughs> part of the country in terms of finding financiers, finding equity, finding finding funds in general? Sure, sure. So I think... Um you know, what's, how much time do we have? We're 10 to 20. Okay, so I think what might be helpful here, Liz, is to kind of give you all maybe a financing or fundraising 101, at least from my perspective, okay? Um, there's no one way to do this, and there's an incredible diverse array of strategies in the toolbox that you could involve yourself in to try to find money for your movie, okay? It can feel like turning over every, over every rock at times. Um, your podcast is called Making Movies Hard, and fundraising <laughs> is hard, okay? Um, it is very hard. But I do want to say, this is my big joke that I always say like when I'm pitching, like what are the first three letters of the word fundraising spell? They spell fun, okay? <laughs> so if you don't make it fun for yourself, like, like make it interesting, make it dynamic, like, you know, you're, you're gonna hate it, okay? Because you're gonna be on a treadmill, you know? Um, when I look back at my career, um, I've raised more than $30 million for independent films over the arc of my career. And sometimes when I even do that math, I'm like, oh my God, how did I do that? And I did that in all kinds of interesting and dynamic ways. And I failed a lot along the way, okay? Um, but anyway, let's, uh, financing 101. So, so for those of you who are on the documentary side of business, um, you typically need to operate as a 501c3 nonprofit if you really want to fundraise successfully. So you probably get a fiscal sponsor. Is this sounding familiar to people? They get relatively, right? There are many good fiscal sponsors out there and they allow you to operate as a, as a legitimate nonprofit or charity in the United States and you can take donations. You can also follow your grant funds through that. It's a wonderful way to raise money for a film when, when that's a good fit. You know, if you have a cause that your film is about, you know, you want to, you know, you want to give your donors a chance to support you, right, in a way that is much like a charity, right? Now, how do you differentiate your charitable endeavor as a filmmaker from, like, funding the homeless or funding COVID or funding more urgent things? Well, welcome to that, right? We have to make a case for our life and work as filmmakers that we actually add value to the culture and we add value to the, you know, to civil society in ways that we should command funding just like every other urgent cause out there, right? If we don't make movies about COVID, if we don't make movies about homelessness, if we don't make movies about HIV and AIDS or LGBTQ rights or whatever your cause is, like how can we move these, 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 these situations forward as a culture? So understanding that there's a pitch there that is not, not for profit, a charity, right? I could walk you through, you know, incredibly robust ways to do that. On, on my movie, The G Word, which I talked about earlier about giftedness, I have created and monetized a whole partnership community of nonprofit around the world that are actually paying to support the film while we're making it. It's been a hugely beautiful experience. Um, they see the film as they want something they want to support. They pay anywhere from $250 to $5,000 to join the network. And we've raised more than $80,000. Um, and that's significant money to kind of keep the lights on for a documentary when you're trying to keep it moving forward, right? Um, so the not-for-profit side, there's also diverse ways to do that. I have crowdfunded 14 times. Okay, um, and only failed once on Kickstarter, and that was pain 
full, right? So some films and filmmakers, want, they want me to crowdfund and I can tell how ready they are. And I'm like, you're going on Indiegogo where there's no, you know, where, where there's no pressure. <laughs> well, there's always pressure, right? Um, I have films where we're, you know, we're on crowdfunding because we're, we got into a festival and we need to raise $30,000 to deliver the movie for a festival. And that's a very stressful thing to do, but you just, you, you, you look at the reality of what do I have to fundraise, how fast, what's the way to, you know, get there. On the scripted side, it's much more complicated, okay? Um, and that's where a lot of people kind of start to gloss over, you know, and sort of, you know, it, there's, there's, a, not a, there's not a specific roadmap, but let's say you wanted to finance a film um, using private equity investors, okay? First thing you need to do is you need to form some sort of vehicle, a company that can actually take investment, right? So that's often an LLC, okay? I've been a filmmaker who actually manages many too, too many LLCs, so some years ago I pivoted into having a corporation. So depending on where you are in your journey, you might look, look at the corporation solution as a way to funnel money into a film, but sometimes an LLC is more than enough, okay? And an LLC will protect you as an individual, and it will also be a legal entity that can take private investment, okay? Then you decide how much do you want to raise on, on by way of private equity. I don't make micro-budget micro scripted features, so I'm too old for that. <laughs> um, but let's say you wanted to make a movie that was a $500,000 budget. Okay, that's a movie I, I might make, okay? Um, and you decided that you wanted to raise 200,000 of that money um, through private equity. So what you would do is you would work with your attorney to create investor documents, we call it a private offering, and you would structure your raise, 200K, in the context of shares, right? Maybe it's 10 shares of $20,000. And then you have to be able to find people who wanna absorb the risk and jump on your movie at the 20K level, right? And actually invest in it, right? Well, what's gonna incentivize them you know, to do that? Well, on the back end of making the movie, they typically need two things. They need what we call a premium, okay? And they need what we call a relationship to net profits, okay? And so, for example, if you've, if someone has, um, has invested 20K, and, oh, and they're always first dollar in, first dollar paid, right? So, and they get paid back pari pursui, meaning everybody gets paid the same amount at the same schedule once they're earning money back, right? So, and your investors, you know, came on like through your development raise or your pre-production raise, and they just jumped on early. So that's why the premium is so important. You need that for them to say yes. So for every dollar that they get paid back, they then get another 20% before the film reaches its net profit threshold. People following me on this? Yeah. And then you maybe split the net profits with your investors, 50% to the producers or the LLC, 50% to them, right? Shared peri pursui, shared in you know, pro rata um, as the film makes income, right? What you do when you're trying to think of a movie as an enterprise that makes money is you see it as a pie, okay? And there are different ways to cut up the pizza, <laughs> if you will. Um, and there's different ways to compensate people who are involved in bringing the movie to the screen. So on the producer side of the producer's unit, right, there's, let's say there's no money in the bank, right? Well, equity, giving, you know, giving points on a film, maybe you've heard that strategy, is a way to compensate people. That's the 50% that you've maybe saved over here that you're not giving to your investors, right? So, you know, I really want this DP, I really want this actor, I'm gonna give them points, right? As well as maybe their low budget SAG rate because they, want, we, they, they love the script, they wanna be involved, 
And so that they needed a little extra something for their agent to be comfortable with them saying yes or something of that nature, right? Also, if you're thinking about people on the producer side of your movie, like obviously it's a best case scenario when producers have a salary, right? And are being paid a line item out of the budget. But there are ways to compensate people with credits on a film, with you know, relationship to the LLC. They could be it could be a multi-manager, multi um, a multi-member LLC where they're vested in that. Um, they could have a relationship to the film's net profits. There's lots of different ways for people to kind of be a part of that pie. And typically, though, what you want is if, if, until the movie warrants giving over any rights, like assigning a territory like the United States to a distributor, you don't want to do that unless you really need to do that. <laughs> um, because the movies that have the most value are typically the ones where the producers retain all the rights and they go to festivals and they sell them and then you hear about those deals in the trades. So if you are in a situation where you have to sell off rights, which I do a lot because I'm trying to get my movies made and no one's given us the money, so we pre-sell territories, right? You are, your film is kind of less attractive to Netflix you know, by the time it premieres, right? So I have to consult my filmmakers sometimes and say, you know what, we don't have enough money for post-production. We have to think differently about what this movie is doing right now. And, and, and like, you got to get it made and get it out in the public <laughs> before you can sort of say it's done. So you make those tough choices. Um, sometimes that's when I involve a sales agent. And if, it's, if a film commands it, like for example, I produced a film about uh, Pierre Cardin, who's a famous French fashion designer. He passed like not a year and a half after our film came out. And we were, believe it or not, we were having trouble raising money for that movie. I mean, as famous as he is, right? And so we had a very strong sales agent that was selling our film with us territory by territory, right? So we sold Japan, we sold Australia, we sold France, you know? And those bits and bobs of money, not only do they help fund production, they help allow for other kinds of financing to be leveraged as you're finishing your film. That's when you get toward, like let's say you're, you have a film that you've shot and you don't know how to get completion financing, well, if you could start selling territories, and if you're garnering distribution interest, you actually can go to a bank, okay? And the bank will actually do what's called a gap loan, and there's completion bonds, and there's all these different sort of financing products, companies like Entertainment Partners and Bondit, and you know, they, they, they help you finish your film, and of course they have a stake in that, and of course they have to be paid back. Sometimes there are equity financiers that will help you finish a film, but they need to be paid back immediately, right? So they operate like a loan. Um, so it just depends on what amount of risk you're willing to be absorbed to get your movie on screen, and you kind of work that way. I think the big, the big challenge is to decide what budget are we making this film at, right? And then mapping the financing strategy to get to that budget, right? So you can imagine that the $500,000 movie that I started talking about in the beginning of my description looks very, very different from the $5 million budget that we might want to make, right? And how um, it could be very, very hard to raise $5 million from private equity investors because think of how many investors you don't have to manage. So a private equity raise for an independent film, which is very common in Bay Area and very common in general, is something you want to do in a managed, thoughtful way where you're not exposing yourself to too many relationships that will make it very hard to track the back-end reporting of your movie, right? I have a movie called Heaven Adores You, which was a in private invested funded documentary about Elliot Smith, and that movie was premiered in 2014, and we're still reporting to those investors actively on a quarterly basis.
So you have to just like understand that it's the life of a film. You're involved with these investors. So I have like 1,000 questions after all <laughs> everything you just said, but I think the most important Are people following one, what I'm, how I'm walking through this? Okay. So the most important one is when do you start the LLC? Because you know, I've got, when I started the LLC for my movie, I had lots of advice. Like some people told me to wait. Uh, some people told me as soon as you have money in, start the LLC, start that process. Mm -hmm. And I ended up starting it probably two years before I made my movie. And okay. so that's like $800 a year in LLC fees plus fees for um, you know an accountant to do the taxes for the yeah, LLC yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So it can be expensive. So my, my question to you is like, when do you think filmmakers should start their LLC? Should it be before they have money raised, like right in the beginning or later on? There's sort of, there's not any clear exact benefit around timing. Um, the only thing I kind of recommend is that you track your expenses actively from the moment you start spending money, okay? So if you are spending your own money on a film that you're trying to develop, you should be tracking those, not just for your personal income taxes, but for the future uh, transparency of the movie, okay? If the movie should scale into something that warrants more than just you and your own personal or business bank account, okay? Because you wanna know, I'm Mark, and I've invested $8,000 into developing my movie, okay? And that $8,000 can actually go on record in your LLC operating agreement as a disclosure, right? That, so when other people you know, are joining your kind of you know, pie, it's very clear that that was an, either an $8,000 investment in the LLC or that it's recoupable to you before other, you know, other investor money gets you know, spent on the movie. There's lots of different ways of thinking about your personal investment in a film, right? You also, I think, you know, you can't do this in, you know, like legitimately in the LLC agreement, but you should be monetizing your sweat equity on your film, right? So a lot of filmmakers, they don't even take the time to have a calculating tool that says, I work this many hours unpaid on my own movie this month, right? And I think for your own sort of confidence, if you want to move your movie into a more, you know, robust set of financing opportunities, you really have to put a, mon a monetary value on your sweat equity. Um, because you can actually articulate that to an investor and they're gonna be like, wow, you worked on this movie for nine months, unpaid, full time, and now we're talking and, th and this package is ready. And, you know, and if you don't think to yourself, well, that nine months meant this much, out, this many hours, this much hour, what I should have been paid by the hour, you know, we all can sort of set a reasonable rate that we wish we could be paid in an unpaid environment. You know, every unpaid opportunity should be, should be thought about in a monetized framework, right? So if you are someone who, you know, is working on your film because you're the only one to develop it, you really have to put a value on your time. Your time is so important. Um, development is the hardest phase of a film to fund because you've got nothing to show people. <laughs> I'm writing my screenplay. I'm an unpaid writer, right? Who cares <laughs> how many people are doing that, right? Well, but if you are thinking about your time methodically, you know, it's this product that you've written, right? That you can then say, gosh, it took me this long to write it. And I actually have a sense of what that means personally, professionally, monetarily. Being a Bay Area filmmaker, has that helped you in any way with fundraising? Like in terms of nonprofit donations? Yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. Any yes, of yes. these models are talking Yes, about. yes. Oh, please. I mean, the Bay Area is an incredibly generous philanthropic set of worlds that we all move through. Um, I, you know, I can't say that 
it would be hard for me to maybe put a money a monetary value on how much money I've raised in the Bay Area versus other parts of the world, or the country of the world. But I know that I have deep networks here, and I have you know I've had how many fundraising parties here. I mean, I just had a fundraiser at an art gallery for a film a month ago. We did very well, you know. So yes, we are constantly raising money. I'm on the fundraising treadmill for the films that are at my company all the time, and there it has to be a local component for it if it involves local talent. So yes, and but I think there's always a, a local component, there's a national component, and then there's an international component. And those and and some of my films just don't make sense internationally. Like we're just not pitching them because no broadcaster in Europe is going to care. You know, there isn't really a global sales agent that is going to get why this U.S. story is important. You know, all these different things that might just might, you know we know that film might do well at a festival in Europe, but they don't they won't know they won't know it until they see it, right? And so you have to kind of ask yourself, what's my film? Right, and how 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 can I? Where in the world might it matter? Um, you know, I uh, I have so this week. Um, full disclosure, I have two movies going into wide release this week on Tuesday, which is an amazing moment, right? Um, one is called one is called Being BB, and one is called Baloney. Um, Baloney is a local documentary um, that came out of my creative communities here. You know, that was a, it's a beautiful film. It did well, really well at festivals. The other film is called Being Bibi, which is a documentary about Bibi Sahara Benet, who was the first winner of RuPaul's Drag Race. Okay? She is famous around the world, right? And so we were able to have a much more international financing strategy for that movie. And oh, do I love a movie like that, right? Because I can actually talk to my networks around the world. And you know, we were talking to Taiwan. We were talking to you know all the companies in Europe, and and some of them came on late in the story, but it was extremely robust. Um, Baloney, you know, very local film, but and very San Francisco story. Um, and we just you know we managed to sell it to a good distributor that is re releasing it on VOD. So by appearances, it might be a smaller film, but we're giving it the same amount of love, the same amount of care. And um, but it was a much better film. So going back to that filmmaker who's got the script for their film, they're, they're trying to raise money for their first feature, maybe they have made some shorts, maybe not. Once they have their plan together, once they have followed like this, this Finance 101 and they're ready to go out to investors, how do they do that? They don't have the connections necessarily that you have or that someone else who's been doing this for a long time have. Maybe they don't even have any family connections to any finances. They're just a person who has a great idea and, and has a great plan. Like how do they find that, those equity investors to put money into their movie? So this is a tricky question, right? Because what it speaks to is the fact that some people move through circles where they have access to wealth and some people don't, right? And that's a huge problem in our industry. Um, the number of filmmakers that I personally know that are, their careers are only possible because they came from rich families um, that have wealth, you know, is a very long list. Um, and many of them, you know, they, the way that they do what they do is they then continue to invest in other people's films and so they sort of spread the love around that way. And so there is a certain kind of virtuous independent film kind of culture in that sense of wealthy films and filmmakers kind of helping non-wealthy ones. And we see that happening. They, they create a film fund, they create a company that does finishing funds, that so on and so forth. Um, I was not a person that came from wealth. And I told you my mother was a Holocaust survivor, okay? So I, I was middle class. I grew up in a townhouse in New Jersey until we moved to LA when my mother's career took us there. And you know, I worked my way up. You know, I landed in San Francisco in 1990 and I have been relentless, okay? For 32 years, figuring out how to make a case for making my art in a way that is sustainable, okay? So I think that 
you have to see yourself in relationship to that wealth narrative. You have to be able to step into it and be comfortable pitching to those people um, that you belong there, that the worst that they can say is no, um, and that no is not you're awful, you're evil. <laughs> um, no on this project, maybe you can come back. You, know? um, you cannot do this work to be liked. Okay? You cannot work in the fields of art and film and media so people will like you. Right? You have to have an extremely thick skin and you have to be relentless. Now, if you're shy and you're awkward and you're more of a writer-director who's quirky, like more power to you, you need producers then who can be your conduit <laughs> to those people with wealth. If, that, if, if finding wealthy investors is the way you want to go, right? Um, I, I don't think that, I, I sort of feel like we all move through lots of different worlds at different stages of our lives and we just have to figure out our comfort zone you know, I very early on in my 20s, I figured out that I had nothing to fear. And I was very, very early on able to just move through these worlds with some degree of confidence and that the worst that they would say is no and that it wasn't going to destroy me to hear the phrase no. And guess what? When you make movies, you're going to hear no a lot, right? Um, so I don't, you know, I, I don't see, do I have relationships when you come pitch me a movie? And I, yes, but do I see myself as a gatekeeper? Not really, you know, I think I, I try to see myself in this kind of, like I say, intentional economy where we all benefit, we all contribute, right? And if you see yourself in that kind of equation, then suddenly those wealthy people aren't so scary, you know, mm. and they are a, a more approachable. And what they're excited about at the end of the day is you. Like I. You know, what, a lot of times I have filmmakers who aren't comfortable pitching and I just have to say you have to get comfortable pitching um, because they're funding talent, they're funding you. Um, yes, it's your script or yes, it's your documentary, but they want to fund you and especially at this interpersonal level where, you know, we're not in, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, on the, in the, the indie world is just a sort of hopefully more friendly kind of you know, um, scaled down version of the Hollywood world. Our models are very similar. Um, and if you see yourself, you know, in that equation, it's, you know, it's, it's really just about what's the budget of my film and how do I get there, right? I don't know if that really helpfully answers your question, but there's, there's no magic wand. I'm not sitting up here because, <laughs> you know, I can text someone that you can't. I mean, sometimes I can, but you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a little bit of like, over the arc of a life, you build relationships. And if, you, if you're good with those relationships, you'll be able to return to those people. I mean, I cherish the people, the festivals, the distributors, the streamers, the, the professionals at all those companies, the people who've invested. And you know, part of my job is communicating back to them, not just that gratitude, but the why of, why, of how it worked or didn't work, right? Some movies do make money, some movies don't. And you'd be surprised how even a movie that didn't make a lot of money, that the investor will come back to you again and say yes again because of how you conducted yourself. Just to press you on that just a little bit, and sorry to interrupt you, Liz, I know you have a question, but um, in 1990, when you went and started fundraising for your movies, kind of like in San Francisco for the first time, mm -hmm. what had you done before then? Like, okay, so in 1990, I was 21 years old, okay? okay? <laughs> you know, which I know you, have, you can hardly believe, right? Um, so I, you know, I landed here after having an undergraduate degree in film from UC Santa Cruz. I got my first apartment in the Castro. I was a young queer AIDS activist you know, who loved movies and, and wanted a film career. I got a job at all the local film festivals and suddenly I was Mr. Everywhere, okay? Like that was my story. The first few years in the 90s, I worked at a Jewish film festival, I worked at Frameline, and then I landed eventually at San Francisco International, right? 
Those first few years in the 90s, all I did was be ubiquitous. I was at every event, everywhere I could volunteer, everywhere I could intern. I was unstoppable. And that, I mean, you have that kind of energy in your 20s, so why not, right? Be, be present, be involved in community. Um, and that just was sort of in my DNA anyway, because I was a young activist. And so I started connecting with documentary filmmakers who needed help with their fundraising. And I saw I was very good at it. I was very good at writing grants. I was very good at helping them with their events. So, you know, I was, you know that, that was a sweet spot for me because I had this kind of odd, fearless confidence at an early age that was, I think, a value proposition for independent filmmakers who needed people like that on their team. And then, um, as the story goes, it's kind of a sweet story. So in 1994, I was a young programmer at the San Francisco International Film Festival. I always, I always joke about this because nobody at the festival actually knew my real age, and I was actually 24 years old, <laughs> and I was the young person in the programming department. And at one point, you know, the office manager the day before my birthday came up and she's like, it's your birthday. Are you going to be 25? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be 25. And then she, she stands up, everyone's like, oh my God, you guys, Mark's only 25. You know, like they all <laughs> thought I was some old, like, you know, person in my 30s. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I sort of had this kind of, you know, very productive first few years at, right out of college, and I landed in this very good job. And um, we were locking our program that year at the film festival, and my boss was a guy called Peter Scarlett. That's probably not a name that means anything to any of you. But he and I had a real kind of energy with each other. We liked each other a lot, and we were all, you know, I was that guy that was back in, the, in those days that got the faxes, got the phones, got the VHS cassettes, and I kind of tracked them as they were coming into the programming department. And we got a very late call from the producers of a film called Adventures Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm. I don't know if that's a movie that means anything to any of you. Um, and I'm like, I'm taking this home tonight and I'm watching this film tonight. It's called Adventures Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Me and my roommate Carla, we smoked a big fat joint and we watched Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I said, this is the, gonna be the freaking biggest movie of the year. And you know, even though I was stoned, I still thought it was a bit of a movie. Um, and I walked into my boss's office the next morning and I said, you need to watch this today. We were like three days from locking the program. He is navigating big deals with Miramax and trying to get our open night films log, blah, blah, blah. He's like, he's like, is it really, really good? And I'm like, it is so, so good. We can sell out the Castro with this. This is gonna be a, a change-making movie. And he's like, okay, I'll program it. We program it. And he gave me the film. And I was in charge of orchestrating the premiere of that movie. We oversold the Castro. We turned away hundreds of people. Wow. Distributors came up because there was a pre-Cannes buzz. We got the film at SF Film Festival before Cannes. Wow. And a bunch of buyers came and that film was bought before Cannes. And, it was, and so I, I was in the room that night. I helped create that moment. I saw what a film festival could do to help get a movie placed with a really important mainstream distributor. And I was hooked. And I was like, this is, this is not only my career, like this is how I have to approach this, is that I understand how to cultivate audience and enthusiasm and market these movies to what we, what in the 90s we called niche communities or niche audiences, right? I knew I, was, I had some kind of sweet spot with the queer audience because that was my community. 
right? But I could see how there was excitement brewing across different verticals of communities in the 90s, and that that would continue to be a way to fundraise, to finance, to execute on marketing, and to work with distributors. So my first business that I started, like boldly at age 26, was actually a sales and distribution company first. Wow. And that's what I did. I distributed movies, and I was crazy, and I did it and did it for about six years, and that kind of segued me into fi the first films I was able to finance. But it was always, it was always with the goal of eventually making movies, mm. like, to, as a filmmaker. Um, but that kind of crazy, young, entrepreneurial thing that I did with my first film company, which exposed me to all aspects of the independent film business, like, and how that business works, was the exposure vehicle for just all the things I've learned that yeah. I'm talking with you about here today. And that early exposure in sales was also pivotal for kind of getting my knowledge out ahead of people's around how to understand, like if you understand where the films are gonna go, you can kind of reverse engineer a strategy, yeah. right, to kind of get the films made. And that was really what started to make sense for me. You know, it was, ah, okay, if you have power over here, then you really are starting strong, right? And so, you know, it's, it, that was sort of the thing that started to make sense. Yeah. I keep muting myself because I'm in a house full of children under 10. Um, so if you hear like banging on the piano while I ask this question, that's what's going on. I'm not in a crazy musical. It's just a lot of children. Uh, a lot of emerging filmmakers have a presumption that if you keep your overhead low or if you play at Sundance, then you're going to make a career or a life, a sustainable life out of making movies. The reality is very different, right? A lot of filmmakers cannot live their life making movies entirely. As you mentioned, you're relentless. As you mentioned, you, you went into distribution at an early stage in your career. But I just want to know at what point point were you able to 100% live a life of being a filmmaker and what advice would you have for people in the room with regard to sustainability oh goodness oh my god <laughs> um, so so my career unfolded in sort of several stages and I actually had a pretty significant health crisis in the 2000s that kind of took me out of the film business for three or so years where I had to make my life really small and kind of not die. <laughs> and so because that happened to me, I had, you know, I had a lot of time to think about what kind of career I wanted in the future and how I wanted to be in the world and in this business. And so, you know, when I came out of that horrifically dark period in my life and I emerged, um, I came at everything, you know, with a my younger my younger version of myself there was not enough expertise around risk calculus and understanding all the moving parts of the business and i was a sole entrepreneur so i was just taking on everything and it was just it, it really was the end of me i mean you know I'm, i almost died um and and so that you know when you talk about sustainability like you have to take care of yourself you know you have to understand your own kind of calculation when it comes to risk this is a very risky business you know do not take on more risks than you can because it will not work out well for you right and and add in self-care and family and friends and relationships like like we have to wrap ourselves up in a community that believes in who we are and vice versa right in order to like stay the course with some kind of confidence and clarity I will let, you know, my the early version of that guy, that I, the guy who discovered Priscilla the Queen of the Desert and then jumped into a career, I just didn't ask for enough help. I didn't ask for support. I needed to be like this sort of sole entrepreneur. And, and some things happened to me during that period that were, you know, like other people wanted to buy my company and I got scared. You know, I, I, I didn't want to lose ownership of this thing that I had created that I was the entrepreneur of. And, 
if I had sort of said yes to some things, I, that would have been a model where I would be working for someone else, right? And that wasn't why I started the company. I wanted to be my own boss. You know, I really was, I didn't see myself like becoming somebody else's, you know, cog in a machine, even if that machine meant that it would pay me a salary, right? So I made some t decisions where I said no to things that I could have said yes to, and you, you live, you love, you learn, right? No, no, no regrets, right? Have that rough patch, and then you know, three years of not being well, and I, when I came out of it, I said, Mark, you can do this differently. You can do this better, and you can do this you know, in a way that really is sustainable. And so the company I have now, 13 Gen, I started in 2009, and you know, touch wood, you know, we are sustainable. I mean, it's not perfect all the time. I have certain months that are feast or famine, um, but I, you know, mostly, you know, we keep the lights on at my company, and I work for myself, and I am a job generator for others, and we pay our bills, and you know, it's I'm you know, I thank God and Goddess and whatever else every day, you know, that I can call myself an independent filmmaker living in the most expensive city in the country, you know, and I'm a homeowner with my husband. I mean, these are, this is a story that I'm very proud of, right? I didn't have to go down and work at Lionsgate and become somebody else's cog. I have my own entrepreneurial thing, and because of that early kind of period of rough lessons, I could redo it. You know, I had a do-over. And thank goodness I was given that chance. So my 20s were rock star. I mean, like, so rock star. I mean, it was, like, bizarre. You know, I mean, like, there was, a I mean, there was a, back in those days, there was a printed calendar for the San Francisco film community, okay, every year. It was a gorgeous printed four-color calendar. In the middle of that calendar was a fold-out in 1998, and there were two people quoted in that calendar with pull quotes. One of them was Mayor Brown. Willie Brown, and one of them was Mark Smolowitz. Okay, that's the kind of 90s I was having, right? I was like the 30 under 30 in San Francisco Magazine, you know, it was that kind of story in my 20s, right? My 30s, I was a fucked up mess. In my 40s, I was kind of the do-over guy. I got to do it over. Late 30s, early 40s, yeah. Now I'm in my 50s, and I'm like the old guy at the front of the room telling you how I did it. <laughs> yeah. But, and I know you can hardly believe I'm in my 50s, right? Um, but it's, you know, you, when you look back on your life, it makes sense, you know? And you, you, you know, there's a story that you can kind of comprehend about yourself, you know? And, and hopefully along the way, you know, I conducted myself mostly as a virtuous person, and made some great movies, helped some other filmmakers make some great movies. And, you know, it, I don't even know if I'm really answering your question, Liz, but, you know, this is, you know, it's, you know, my career makes total sense to me where I'm at, you know? And so since I started 13th Gen in 2009, I mean, we have made, been significantly involved in more than 40 movies in the last 13 years. And that is not a small amount of movies as an independent producer to be involved in. Um, and the, the, but let me be very clear with you that there are movies where I am a producer with a capital P. That's how I describe it. Meaning like the books are at my company. I have an equity stake in the film. I, you know, I'm, I own something about that film and it's all over my desk and I have to wake up every morning and worry about it. <laughs> there are other movies where I also wake up and worry about it, but my role is much more specific, right? Where I'm an executive producer and I have a particular kind of involvement in a film or I'm a co-producer because I'm helping a filmmaker from outside the United States have a presence in the US or I'm a consulting producer and that's a big part of how I work now where frankly all of you hire me and pay me to do work for you and that's how I you know and then and the consulting producer pathway at my company is a way for us to get to know each other and for me to understand that you're not a crazy person and that we're actually a fit in terms of mission vision and values around the film and that I can I'm the right producer for you so many films start in my consulting arm 
and then they graduate um, because I've decided they're able to <laughs> and they prove themselves and I become a vested producer or an executive producer or some other kind of producer. When you come to my company, you will start in the consulting barn. Like that's where you will begin. We'll have a 30 minute meeting for free. I get to know you, you get to know me. You learn about how I work and we kind of figure out if you're a fit. And I work in these 10 and 20 hour increments and those are usually a revelation. We can start to see some real productivity. You know, and over 20, 40 hours, we're, we're making progress. And you know, we figure out if we are a good fit. And both interpersonally, creatively, business-wise, on, 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 right? Um, if we don't like each other and you don't like my style, you know, you know, goodbye and good luck, right? And then, so the consulting relationship allows us to shake hands, so to speak, and say goodbye respectfully. And I haven't impacted your rights. You still own your film. And I think a lot of filmmakers don't even think about that. They just want to go make their movie. And what I help them understand through my consulting business is, your movie's a business, let's figure out how to wrap it up as a business. So you actually can go out and do the, the work that I do, which is finance the film in a credible way that is a winning strategy. If you're, if you're struggling for years to find fun, funding for a film, you're making the wrong film. Or you're talking about the film in, in the wrong way. Um, because this is not impossible to do. You know, you should be able on an annual basis to chart progress with your fundraising, even if your film is hard to finance, okay? If you're not having progress, ask yourself if you're making the right movie. <laughs> because there's a lot of people who want to make movies. So I know it's at 11 and we're, we need to wrap things up we soon. We can do about 10 more minutes if you want. Okay, I have one more question I want to ask just in relation to I what you just said. I want to also be, if people want to ask questions, so I want to be able to do that for them too. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe this will be a short answer and we can have yeah, some Q&A. Sure. But basically every, you know, filmmaker is looking for a producer. Like, you know, we're, we're all out there like trying to get our movies made and we don't know how because we're directors, we're creatives and we want that producer to come help us. Yeah. So when you see that director that meets with you and like you say yes to them, what what are you seeing in that person in their project that makes you want to say yes and like you know collaborate with them on the movie? Okay, so that's a great question. Okay, so so remember how I talked about being relentless? I need to feel that that person is equally relentless. Okay, that's a huge part of what makes me excited. Um, that like whatever it takes, they're going to get this movie done. Whether it's me jumping on as some kind of producer or someone else, like this movie's going to get done. Okay, like that person excites me, and I can usually get that in the first zoom. Okay, how they talk to me about their film, you know, like if, if you show up and all you do is complain about how hard your film is to get made, like that's not a fun person to talk to. You know, like I want, I, I, I need to have the sense that you are going to make this movie, right? So it's a personality piece. That's one of the pieces. Um, but then I also have to see how I fit in in a way that really makes sense. And so, so let's say you want me to be like the capital P producer, okay? Um, I need to know that your film is buttoned up, okay? So there'll be a period of evaluation where we look at everything, okay? You, I, have you done your releases right? Um, have you done your clearances right? Have you, do you have insurance? Um, you know, I, I typically will have you do tons of homework on your dime, on your time, to show me that you have not made a messy movie. Um, and that, and actually anybody who gets involved in your film as a vested producer, whether it's a, you know, a guy like me at 13 Gen or a streamer, is going to need all of that, just all that stuff disclosed to them. 
because they need to know it's not a mess, that they're not going to take on risk, you know, that they're, you know, suddenly lawyers are calling and complaining, right? We know who wants that? Like, that's not fun, right? So, so if I become a capital P producer, it's because we're that close. I know, I know, like, I, I'm in the weeds in your movie and I trust you <laughs> and you trust me and we've decided this is the right relationship. Being BB, the one that's coming out on Tuesday, I'm a vested producer. 13 Gen is a co-owner of the film and Emily is a rock star director, producer, editor who knew how to do it and, you know, and it was just the right, it was the right movie at the right time. She had started that movie in 2006, three years before BB was on RuPaul's Drag Race in season one, okay? Came to me, in two, she met me at two, in 2016. I had a film screening at Doc NYC called The Nine, which I produced for a Bay Area filmmaker named Katie Granin. We were having our, do, our New York premiere, and another woman from an earlier film called Heaven Adores You, who had been on our team, like introduced me to her and she's like, I hear you're an accomplished queer producer. Like that was the start of the, you know, like after the Q and A we're all mingling and you know, well, and then two years later I'm, I'm on her movie. After she did the deep work with me, making sure that I was the right producer. And that's a huge investment on a filmmaker's time. It's very courteous to me, but it's like, if you want my help, I have to know that this can work. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense. With Baloney, the other film that's coming out this week, that filmmaker, um, so I made a movie with Darcy Drollinger called Shit and Champagne, which is this crazy, wonderful, um, you know, drag queen comedy that Darcy is the, like, sole creator. He's writer, director, and star, okay? He owns a nightclub called Oasis here in town, in, I mean, in Soma, and we've been in community together for a million years. I was involved in a movie in the 90s called Fancy's Persuasion that his group, Enrique, did, like, a cameo in. Like, that's how far we go back, right? So Baloney is a, is, a, is a boy burlesque troupe that performs in-house at Oasis. So because I was exposed to Oasis so closely with making shit and champagne, the filmmaker of, of Baloney found me and we found mm. each other. And I mean, literally, he sent me, and I, 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 we tell this joke openly, like he sent me a 140 minute horrible version of the movie like that I watched, it was horrible. It was like this meandering thing with like ravey music and you know, weird flashes like in the edit like to make it look artsy. And I said, dude, okay, <laughs> these boys are so sweet, so smart. I see so much humanity in these like bits of interview that you're actually letting me experience as opposed to these flashes of art. Like, can we rethink this movie entirely and focus on people? And I'm like, and I see great rehearsal footage, I see some great performance footage, like let's go behind the scenes and find the structure. And like, it was so clear that he needed me and that I was the right producer to fix that movie. And man, did we fix it? We fixed it in eight months. And then it had a great world premiere and it's, it's been all over. Wow. You know, and, and so that was a local filmmaker that I just kind of personally fell in love with him and he, me, him, me, and we found the right terms for our, in, our arrangements. And, and now it's coming out through Gravitas Ventures and it's available on Tuesday, I hope you buy it. It's super entertaining, it's really touching. The date book yesterday called it like Paris is Burning of this, of this moment. You know, it's a very, very sweet behind the scenes, get to know these performers in the backdrop of the most, like trying to make art in the most expensive city in the world. So like, like who can't relate to that? Because we all do that here. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Ulrich, I'm going to take my leave, but I just want to thank Mark for, for just letting me enjoy this conversation and oh, let you all do the Q&A. Thanks, Liz. Bye. Nice meeting everyone. Well, Mark, thank you for all this amazing information. It's been fantastic. I have thousands more questions, but like you said, let's open it up to the room. Yeah, I would love to hear from people who have questions. questions. 
I see some old time friends here in the audience today, <laughs> and some filmmakers I work with, and some editors. Um, yes? Um, I've heard different people say that they like pitch decks, other people say they don't like them. What? If I'm presenting a movie to somebody. I need a pitch deck. Yeah. Pitch um, if, I don't, if you don't have a pitch deck yet, you can come to me and I'll help you make the pitch deck. Okay? That's part of what we do in my consulting arm. So packaging is an extremely sweet spot for me. Um, I can help you go from a strong paragraph about your movie to creating all the materials, you know, whether it's the budget, um, the pitch deck, you know, in some cases the sizzle, in some cases the online presence. It, ju it just depends on what we agree is the most important tasks. Um, but nowadays, everybody's doing pitch decks. It is critically important to have a good one that is designed, that gives your film a brand and identity early on, okay? Um, the thing that I will say about that is that I also work with my filmmakers to cultivate your brand and your identity, okay? So we, uh, just as we make it a film and it needs, it needs a brand, you need a brand. And I know that not everyone likes that word, but it makes my point, right? In that you, you need to know who you are and how you want to communicate yourself from a marketing perspective. And I sometimes help you figure that out and give you the language to do that because that's fun for me because I'm so interested in talent and your success. And so we kind of figure that out together. But, but it doesn't have to be like the most perfect, like, like I always tell people like before the consulting call, like when I do that first call, I don't spend more than 10 minutes reviewing something, right? Because I don't know you, you know? And so I'll, if you have a pitch deck, it helps me. If it looks like shit, I'll know. And that'll be like something we can talk about in the first call. Um, but typically, you know, a, a really short trailer, if you have something to share with me is a great way to begin. I, you know, I once made a strategic introduction to it film from a filmmaker to an important producer. I didn't think I was the right producer for it, but I knew who was. And she sent me a 90 second sizzle and I knew who should make it with her. And that film has been made. You know, and so you never know like where I might kind of like think, hmm, I'm not the right person for that. Um, and there are there are movies that I meet through my consulting meetings that I'm not the right producer, but man, I want to see them get made. And then there are a lot of people who are just not right. And and people pitch me, and I'm like, I'm not going to make your five hundred thousand dollar five five hundred five hundred million dollar movie. Like that's not who thirteen. That's who we are. You know, and like know who you're talking to, and then we might have a meaningful conversation. And I'm just going to repeat the question for the recording going forward. So just, sure, I'm sorry. You, yeah. So who's next? In the back there. Do you have an opinion on narrative films, like getting a ripomatic trailer together and pitching, or is, is that sort of just like something people don't do? So ripomatic uh, trailers, are ripomatic trailers good or are they bad? They're good, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, anything that helps me visualize what you're thinking is in, in service of the discussion, right? I don't think it's a must have, um, but if you like to make that kind of thing and you're good at it, like, and it shows me something that is clear and compelling and exciting, like, right on. Like, I, like you know, this is a visual medium, right? So I want to read words sometimes because words are also a way for me to evaluate something, but if you have something visual, that's much more compelling, right? I mean, sometimes really good pitch decks are all visual and very few words. Any other questions? Right here. This isn't a very important question, but I was wondering the name of your company, 13 Gen, what does that mean? 13 Gen, what does that mean? So, um, so remember how I told you I was coming off this rough patch, right? And I wanted to come create a new company for a new version of myself, right? And so if you, if you Google 13 Gen, you'll find me, of course, um, but you'll also find that it was a book. Okay, and it was a book that came out in 1994, 
and it was the first book that tried to kind of curate the voices and meaning and ideas of Generation X, okay? So I am very much a product of my generation, Generation X. And I just, and, and I liked it because I was like, well, so the book talks about how we're the 13th generation in the story of the, in the American story. So since the so-called founding fathers, you know, there have been 13 generations and we are the most unlucky generation, right? That's what the book talks about. We, we were born into a dark recession. It was, you know, the, the, the AIDS year the Reagan-Bush years. It was a terrible time to be in your 20s. Um, and then everything changed in the 90s. But it, you know, I just, I like this idea, like just like I like the word queer, and you can claim the word queer and make it a positive thing as opposed to a negative derogatory thing, I decided to claim the number 13, which is supposed to be unlucky, and make it lucky. And there's actually, like on my Tumblr blog for my company, there's, um, there's a blog post that I wrote about the name that you can read sometime, but it's a, uh, it's, it, it really was a personal, a personal decision to name the company that, and something I gave a lot of thought to. What's the age of that generation? Um, if you're born somewhere between 1964 and 1978, you're probably that moment. Yeah. Um, but that said, we do not just work with filmmakers who are from Generation X. <laughs> my, my, that would be kind of crazy. Um, I love my boomers and work with some of those. I think they're, you know, for sure. Definitely my millennials, my zennials, and oh my God, I love my Gen Zs and everybody, you know? I, and, and, and what's funny is I always used to be the youngest guy in the room until I wasn't, okay? And now I'm not. And I love young people. I love working with young filmmakers. I have a lot of filmmakers in their 20s and 30s who are just rock stars. And the thing that, like, if you show a certain self-reliance, you're gonna be a fit at 13 Gen. Like, if you can be, if you can see yourself on an entrepreneurial journey, we're gonna be able to work well together, as well as a creative journey. Yes. Are you familiar with Script Talk? It's a new, it's a new um, script packaging program. You know, but you know, I think there are so many awesome tools out there that help you visualize things. Um, at the end of the day, like people need to read the screenplay and respond to it, and, they ha and it has to work as a screenplay. Um, screenplays are a little frustrating, in my view, sometimes, because I'm someone who loves novels and loves nonfiction and loves prose, right? And, and there are certain rules of the road when you write a screenplay that are just, in my view, like, I wish we could have more description, or I wish we could have, you know, we're so focused on the dialogue working and the sort of, the, almost like the, the, the screenplay directions to kind of convey what we think we're going to see on screen, and it so often doesn't look like, like, the final product doesn't look like what's on the page, and so I'm like, uh, like, like, like that, that, that read is so, but, but, when, but when the words of a screenplay register with, are brimming with emotion, and are brimming with humanity, like, I just see it, I feel it. It's like, it doesn't matter, those rules that I feel sometimes constrain how screenplays feel to me, like, the screenplays that get me excited are the ones where that emotion just comes through the words. It's just, it, it, you just, you just feel it when you read it. It's, I, you can't, I can't put a finger on exactly what that, why that works. And some, some screenwriters just know how to create that world through the words, and it's, it's quite something when it happens. But whatever tool works for you, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna be you know, discouraged by it. Like, you know, it's, everyone has those things they like. For a while, I was using Adobe Spark as like a way to create pitch decks, and then it became like really clunky and hard for me to do some things, so I left that behind. So you just try different things that make it, make it fun and, and you know, creative for you to express your ideas visually. Any other last questions? One more, maybe? Oh. 
Hello. I was wondering um, if you're seeing any kind of trends as far as trends as far as what um, festivals currently are looking for or accepting. Oh goodness, that's always the question. Yeah, question. Film festival trends. Are there film festival trends? Okay. <laughs> um, so there are always film festival trends, um, and they can change from the winter circuit to the spring circuit to the fall circuit to the next winter circuit, right? The one trend is that all film festivals are trying to discover new filmmakers, right? So the big joke is that the first two films I produced, you know, early in my career, both got into Sundance. I haven't gotten a single film into Sundance since, okay? <laughs> um, and I don't mind saying that out loud because, you know, the, the, the Institute responds to me. I am an alum. You know, they'll read my emails and typically answer in a timely manner. But, you know, they are really, they are really looking for new people, like in cultivating new talent, right? Um, so, you know, you can't just focus on top tier festivals as your way out into the marketplace um, because they have their moving parts that inform how they program. They're heavily reliant on their sponsor relationships, okay? So a lot of times they have to see the fit there, right? They're really interested in discovering talent. Um, sometimes organizations have been supporting that talent along the pipeline of making those films, so those films are more on their radar than others, right? So what we do at my company is we work very, very hard to make sure that the films that we produce are getting the highest level of top tier consideration from all the senior programmers and directors that we can actually get the films in front of, right? So that's how I'm able to differentiate if you work with me. Um, and so yes, does that mean I'm hearing certain things are interesting this year? You know, of course. Um, is it painful when films are getting rejected from top tier festivals and you have to move to a different strategy? Of course, but you know, we always try to, you know, get the film the highest level of consideration and work from there, right? Um, I, I had a film, I think I mentioned it, called The Nine um, by Katie Grannon, and the film did very, had, a, you know, had a series of very rough rejections, like 11, 11th hour, we, they, the programmers were loving the film, and then we didn't get into Sundance, we didn't get into South by Southwest, it's heartbreaking, you know, you, you, you see, you're in those conversations where you feel like you're in the consideration discussion, and then we had a weird thing happen where we got invited to a festival in Europe called Vision du Real, which is quite prestigious in Europe, and actually felt like the right fit for the film because the kind of film it was and so you have to have that difficult discussion right where with a US filmmaker and you try to convince them that you should premiere your film outside of the United States Here, here's why here's what we can do and oh my god did we ever like benefit from making the decision to say yes the film then returned to the US in the fall like as an award winner and had an incredible fall was in 20 festivals and you know and and some of them really prestigious you know and and so you just you have to always approach everything you do in an a la carte manner. That's a phrase I use a lot. Take an a la carte approach to financing, an a la carte approach to, to festivals, and an a la carte approach to sales. Meaning, like, always have a plan A, B, and C, right? And, and as you reach certain benchmarks, you can take things off the table or keep them on the table. Just because someone who at a high level at a particular festival responds to my email doesn't mean your, your film is going to get into that festival. It doesn't mean that I exactly know what they want this year. But I think what I bring is that they know that I make quality movies that typically do well in the marketplace. So they are more making a strategic decision if they want to partner in that story. Right. And with that film and that filmmaker. And, you know, and we kind of, you know, see it in that kind of virtuous, intentional relationship that I described to you. I see my company and our festival network, I mean, I've placed films at more than 250 festivals on five continents, right? And have monetized that, that, that sub-distribution network beautifully. And so, 
I need those festivals. So, so yes, have I had some painful rejections that are heartbreaking and tough to share with my directors, you know, that we didn't get into XYZ place, but it's always like dust yourself off and keep on, keep on doing it because festivals can breathe life into a movie. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to know, like, you know, a ton of B and C festivals may or may not get you a great distribution deal, but you're getting your film out there and you are, you know, developing an audience for it and, you know, it will, it will find its way out into the world. And so festivals are a whole conversation that, you know, I could talk for hours. I mean, literally, it's a, it's a place I feel very at home and I understand what they need. I understand how to work with them. Um, so develop those relationships. Talk to programmers before your film's ready. Like, they, you know, talk to them like, off season like if the festival's in february write them in august like write them earlier like like just say hello get them on your radar so that's uh, all the time we have i think um but thanks so much mark for being a part of this conversation if um if anyone missed any part of this it's going to be coming out as a podcast on our podcast making movies is hard.com that's our website it should be coming out in the next two or three weeks so look for that and Mark, anywhere people should go to learn more about you, anywhere? Yeah, I mean, I'm on IMDb like every other filmmaker. Um, my company's called 13 Gen Film, and we're 13genfilm.com. And um, if you're looking for a movie to watch this week and you feel like you know going to Apple TV or going to Amazon, I've got Being BB and Baloney coming out this week. You can let me know what you think. Being BB is also premiering on Fuse, for those of you who watch Fuse on the 21st. So I'm um, really excited that the film is getting such a wide release. It then goes out in seven countries around the world day and date um, through other distributors on June 21st. So. And good luck. <laughs> Break some legs and arms. Make your movies. Because what? Making movies is hard. <laughs> You're going to break some bones. Liz, what do you remember about our talk with Mark? Not a lot. I do remember being like a disembodied face in the room <laughs> and seeing everyone else, but not quite sure what they were seeing. And then the sound was was fine, but not amazing. So I didn't always I wasn't always able to completely hear everything that was going on because I was in Alabama. I think I was just wishing I was there. You know, it would have been much better if I were in the room. But what was cool is no one, no one could see it because we're not sharing the video. But the room was like almost entirely empty at the beginning. It was like four people. And then by the very end, it was standing room only packed to the gills, like really. And I think either like everyone was late or another event got out late or something. But I think at first I was like, oh no, no one loves us. And then at the end it was like, wait a second, we have utility and we do. And it was a, and Mark is a superstar. Yeah, no, it was fun. Yeah, at first there was like no, at, at our, our scheduled time, there was nobody there. And then like after 10 minutes or so, like a few people started coming in, then it was four. And then as, as, as we got started, like you said, yeah, it was just completely packed. At the end of the show, I was backing up and somebody came up to me and they're like, oh yeah, uh, can I talk to you? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And they're like, um, do you have Mark's email? <laughs> like, and I was uh, like, uh, no. I'm sure you can just get it from him. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, he's a really nice guy. You just look him up online. But yeah, no, it was really fun. Mark was great. I loved his his whole story. I mean, it's really interesting to hear about, like, how he got started, you know, in the in the business. Because, like, n nobody tells that story of, like, going through film festivals, starting as a volunteer, working their way in, and then, like, turning that into, like, a producing career. It's like, we kind of heard that similar story from, like, a festival director, but, like, not from 
become a filmmaker. So it's kind of cool that like he started in the world of film festivals and that was his entry point into becoming a producer and a filmmaker and a writer and all those things. So I think that was the thing that stuck with me the most. And that just, he was just such a nice guy and like, you know, had a really cool like plan that he's been executing in order to like, you know, create a life for himself and, you know, be a sustainable producer because there's so, so few of those. And the fact that he's one of them is pretty damn cool. This week, we have an article from The Hollywood Reporter about the 347 new Academy members that were just announced. 44% are women, 37% are non-whites, and 50% are non-Americans. And I guess about 54 different countries are represented. Big news, big news. Ulrich, what did you think about all this? Well, I was really excited because I was reading through... Well, first, like I have, a, I have a, some, a, uh, an acquaintance. Actually, well, I'm not going to call her out. She is a previous guest of the show. But she told me that she was being considered to be a part of the Academy, and she was like interviewing to go through the process. So I was like looking for her name desperately. Like, oh, did she get it? Did she get it? And she didn't get it. But still, I. But I, what I was even more delighted to see was that there are a few names on there that I did recognize that had been on the show. So Malgorzada Somoska, uh, who was on the show a couple years ago, she is a new Academy member, which is amazing. A fantastic European filmmaker, writer, producer. Uh, Myron Kirsten, editor extraordinaire of In the Heights and Crazy Rich Asians, was on the show. He's Academy member now. Alice Brooks, the cinematographer of In the Heights, uh, who was also on the show. She's Academy member now, which is really exciting. And of course, who couldn't be this name would have to be included. Sevohanian with a Midas touch is now an Academy <laughs> member. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he'd already been an Academy member, yeah. but the fact that he get, got it this year, that's very, very awesome. So congratulations to all of you. That's fantastic. I think it's a really nice, like even within like our little world, like our little sampling of this, it, it is like a pretty good mix of different people from different backgrounds and different, you know, experiences. So uh, yeah, it's very cool. What else do I think about this? I think it's a good step in the right direction. I think that they should uh, get rid of their older members. <laughs> I don't think anyone over 80 should be allowed to be in the Academy. I think like, I don't care if Francis Ford Coppola, you had your time. Your opinion is less, re- is less relevant now, sir. I'm sorry. I, I love you as a filmmaker. Like, you're cool. He's really nice to me when I met him and stuff and worked with him, but too old, man. You gotta move on. Like, we gotta let, like, cut cut this out. Like, 80, 80 plus or 80 on your 80th birthday. Like, you can be like an honorary member or whatever. You can still have your status, but you're not voting. You're not watching movies anymore. Your opinion doesn't matter anymore. I think that should just be... Because it's, it's not fair. It's like we are like a younger, different community now. Like the world is different than it was when these people got into the Academy. It's a completely different place. Like they shouldn't be the ones who are deciding what's best picture, what's best writing. Like it's just they're not... It's just... It doesn't make sense to me. So that's my big push. Maybe it's controversial, but I think anyone who's 80 should not be able to vote in the Academy. But Liz, what did you think? Well, I disagree about that. <laughs> really? Why? <laughs> Tell me why. Why are you disagree? Because I think that we already live in a really youth-oriented culture, and like, I'm not going to cut out voices from the conversation, and I think older, more senior, more seasoned people have perspectives that I want to hear. But I also... Yes, 80. Okay. Paul McCartney just turned 80, sir. But <laughs> let me also say that I don't really understand the value of the Academy right now, so... You know, maybe maybe I just need to investigate more. Like, why why does it have to be so 
particular and why and why can't it be thousands of people as part of it and why can't thousands why is it so specific a number each year and why is it this like coveted club well, it is and, thousands of people it's like 10,000 members or something now it's no like, but per insane. year like why can't we expand it like per year even more you want even more people in I don't I don't people. know honestly I don't know where I stand because I don't know what they do <laughs> I just know people say I want to think the Academy I know the DJ. They, they get screeners and they, they, get they screeners brag on our friends and yeah, they, they vote. It's like this club. <laughs> it's a club, but what do they really do? I don't really know what they do. I know that the DGA screwed over Tom Putnam when he was on the show. Like I don't I don't know if they really protect their members. Like I I don't I haven't figured out their true value. It just seems like it's a mark of status, right? And I, does it cost money? Do you get paid? Is it just for the health insurance? Like I just don't get it. So yay. I like all those people who got in mm-hmm. and I hope that they're happy and I hope that they feel like joyful and grateful. But um, I don't know if I'm going to like put time and energy into being disappointed or happy about this. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that it's good. They're going in the right direction because I do think they should have more women. I do think they should have different representation from different backgrounds, different people of all ethnicities to what from end? all different countries. So like they get, they have more diversity for what? What do they do? What are they doing? Well, because it's going to reflect the kind of movies that get awarded every year. But so like, it's like the I Oscars, think- right? But like who, who cares? Who cares? You who cares? love the Oscars. You're I love the Oscars, Oscars but like I love watching the spectacle, but like what value does it really have right it's it's just like all well, performative and i think the oscars have a huge value because like whoever has one is way more marketable than someone who doesn't have one especially if you're a director or you're a writer or you're a actor i don't think the other maybe dps too let's throw cinematographers in there i think those main like the talent you know disciplines or whatever like those ones it, it, i think it surely affects you right like if you have an oscar to your name like you're gonna get paid it's a, more it's a negotiation more tactic. jobs yeah. yeah for sure it's and, a networking. And it, just, it brings you like a certain clout that like no no like very few other people have to but have let's acknowledge that it know? is really bullshit like it's a system built up of of, of nothing and it, right. they, they decided it was important so it became important but it still matters you know it, it, yeah. it really does does have an effect for traditional so I, Hollywood, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, just like we are doing with with films, I feel like we want the we want things to look like the world that we see, and the world that we see isn't all white, right? So, like, I think getting more diverse voices, more people in, that is like kind of like reflects the world that we live in, is important in the Academy. Just it is as important as having representation on screen or having other stories being told. I think it's equally important yeah. across all the boards because, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is bullshit, but like it's bullshit that actually affects people, <laughs> you know, yeah. that actually changes people's careers and people's lives, like, you know, depending on if they win or they don't, you know. It's a game I Although, don't play though, right? Like I don't talk yeah. to those sales companies. I don't talk to those managers. I don't talk to those agents. I think there's a massive class of filmmakers where all of this news and all of the voting doesn't impact us in any way. And so it just becomes kind of like just kind of fancy fodder to talk about but i agree like at the at a specific tier it, it does have an impact i can see that for sure yeah and i just think that like just like everything it, sh- it should be more equal 
Yeah. It shouldn't be run by the old, white, established majority like most things in the world, or at least in this country, are, you know? And I feel like getting it away from that and more to something that is, you know, a little less, a- like, ageist. Like, it has, a, you know, there's there's people of all ages who are having, you know, a say in the matter. And then, like, people of all colors and all backgrounds having a say in the matter. But you're being ageist. You said cut out the old people. I think people. 80. I think 80. <laughs> Plenty old at 79. You don't need 80-year-olds, you know, going in there. No age limit on either ends. Let them all in. Let them 12 year olds. 12-year-olds. Well, think about Emily Hagens, who made her first feature at 12. <laughs> let her in. <laughs> let Emily in. And then let, let like, septic, you know, octogenarians and what's nine? Uh, what's 90s? I know octogenarians with 90s. I know octogenarian, too. I don't know. N- Niftogenarians. I, I don't know what it is. I just think that, like, you know, people retire for a reason. And I'm not saying that you have to retire from filmmaking at 80. I'm just saying that, like, your perspective is not, like, as... Is not a part of what the world is today. Your perspective is a part of what the world was when you were in your prime. And that's... Show me an 80-year-old who is, like, with it and, like, hip and aware of all the things in the world and is, like, grounded into what our world is today. And then I'll disagree. Did I not say Paul McCartney? Did I not already mention him? (laughs) Well, if I meet Paul McCartney at your house and I did our party and then he turns out to be like a really well-ended person who like, you know, knows like what crypto is and NFTs and is like... (laughs) you know, in sync with the modern world, then sure. But uh, I will bet you most 80-year-olds are like, NF what? Who? Where? Crypto, huh? Are you talking about decrypting uh, the Soviet spy missile from the 80s? Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like people just, at a certain age, and like, gracefully, like, okay, these decisions should be left to someone else. And that's fine. Agree to disagree. Agree. Agree. I don't know if you watched Comedy Bang Bang, but that was a, a running gag in an episode. It's like this this segment where it's like, okay, they call, it's called Agree to Disagree. Yeah. And they they end everything. Agree to Disagree? Agree. <laughs> well, that's, I listened to Paul F. Tompkins today on a podcast, so that's not... Oh, really? I should watch that. Oh. I should listen to Comedy Bang Bang. Oh, oh man. Paul F. Tompkins, my hero. He's so funny. Okay, Liz, how do you stay consistent as a filmmaker? Like, how do you... And like, what is that even... Like, like you could answer this in a thousand different ways, but I just want you to take that question and like let me let me know what you think of that like (laughs) how do you keep yourself consistent you know as an artist as a filmmaker i'm not i get better is how i feel as i genuinely think that i've gotten better with every single project and that i am not consistent in any way shape or form and i look back it's it's weird so i'm cleaning out my email box my gmail box that has been around for you know i'm in 2010 now so i'm looking at emails from 2010 every day and Ulrich, they're depressing. And I'm like seeing the way I used to communicate, you know, 12 years ago. And it was bad. It's bad now, but it was worse then. And I'm just thinking when I made projects in film school or I made the features, it was like to get it done. I got to get it done for class. Got to get it done, you know, just to say I got it done. But now I'm at the point where I'm doing shorts and features or whatever it is. And I'm putting my own skin in the game in a different way. And I'm I'm working on the craft in a different way and I'm I really do feel like I'm making a concerted effort to get better now and to go full force into things that are scary. So, I have no idea how one can be consistent though because that's that's the what you're trying the core of your question is like how do you get good and then stay good, right? I guess what I really was asking is more about 
process and actually doing your filmmaking? So, like, I love the way that you answered this question because it's very different than how I intended the question. <laughs> As usual, it's always me going off on some weird tangent. <laughs> I was thinking of it more like, like, how do you consistently produce work as your film as as a filmmaker? Like, how do you make sure that you're putting in the time and your filmmaking goals on a weekly basis? Because you're so good at it. Like, you're all you've got your meetings oh, with Amy. Yeah, you. you've got all your stuff going on. Like, you're, you seem like you write a lot. Like, you know, you have got all these these processes in place. Like, I feel like I'm really inconsistent as a filmmaker, not necessarily quality wise, but just like as in the the time I put into my art. Like, it's totally haphazard. Like, some days I'll do zero. Other days, I'll like stay up all night working on like a script idea or like jotting down stuff, you know? So, like, I want to work to be more consistent. Like, I'm so I'm actually putting in time every day. And so, I don't know. How do you do it? Like, how are you able to be consistently putting your time into the filmmaking? And it's... Well, I genuinely think it takes, it's like a pragmatic step of clearing time in your calendar and protecting it at all costs. I mean, the Amy meetings, I don't move around unless I have to. At every meeting, we have a deliverable for the next meeting. What are we going to do for next week? It's keeping it forward. And then I have some regular meetings for projects. And it's always the question of what are we doing next week? What are we, what is due? It's treating it like homework. It's treating it like a class. You know, it's like, um, and using each other for accountability. Part of it is that in Part of it is attaching people that you don't know very well that you want to impress to your projects, which just sounds silly. But it's like if I just invited my friends to be a part of a project, I'd be like, ah, they'll be okay if I don't deliver this week or they'll forgive me. But if there's someone I'm trying to impress in the project, then it's like, oh, I'm going to get that in on time and I'm going to go the extra mile and I'm going to move this forward and I'm going to see the inefficiencies because I'm trying to get I'm trying to make a long term relationship out of that person that I've somehow connived into being a part Mm -hmm. of my project. So I think it's a degree of for me, it's like pragmatic, right? But it's also like ego. It's ego and pragmatism Mm -hmm. at the same time. And and having partners seems to help. Like if you have someone else who's holding you accountable yeah. like to that meeting, it's like that keeps you going forward on that specific project, which probably also keeps your creative juices flowing towards other projects as well. And to have something at stake for it, right? So it's like there's something that I will win in my mind if I get this project off the ground. Like I will be seen in a certain way or I'll get to see something come to life or I'll like there also has to be an extreme desire to manifest the project at the same time. So, what, but what about you? Like, what what keeps you I, consistent? I, I don't. I don't. I'm not <laughs> well, <laughs> consistent. But I, what I need to do is, is like, start doing what you're doing and start scheduling meetings. Yeah. And, like, being less reactive and more proactive. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like I, like, I react to, like, when people reach out to, for me to read a script or if they, like, oh, we want to meet to talk about collaborating on a project or whatever. Like, I kind of respond to that stuff and set meetings and discuss things. But, like, I don't necessarily proactively set up meetings or, like, try to push, like, I'm not really trying to push anything forward right now because I got my movie coming out and I've got these other things that are in the air, you know, and so I, what I really wanted to do is be writing, but I'm just not. Yeah. So, like, I think I just need to start scheduling writing time for myself and just, like, that's the time to write. Nothing else is happening in that time. I'm just writing, you know, whether it's seven to eight or, you know, five to six, if I can get up that early, well, whatever it is, like, just have that block where I'm doing my creative work, what? you know? 
a last piece of advice is like, just take some time and think about who do you know and who do you want to work with rather than respond responsive or reacting to yeah. people. It's like, who do you want to send that email out to? Because you're receiving the emails, but who are you, who should you try to woo? And, and that's yeah. also kind of fun too. But I know we have to go. And uh, I want to say to everyone, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Please check out the International Screenwriters Association. We like them a lot. Uh, they're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They publish your log line. They have contests. They have lots of great things. Head on over to www.network isa.org to sign up for free today. Special thanks to Mark Smolowitz for coming on the show. Thanks to Bianca Beirudi and the whole BAMMS BAMS team for making this happen. Thanks to our editor Jeff Reimut for doing the editing. We love you, Jeff. Thanks to our producer Eric Toms for being awesome. We love you, Eric. Thanks to all of you for listening. We love you and talk to you all next week. Whatever. Jeff, you can you can make that work. You don't have to include the BAMS thing if you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs>